Hi. I'm Tim Worthington, and this is Looks Unfamiliar, a show in which myself and the guests talk about six things that they remember that no one else ever seems to. The reason I was doing my best approximation of Annie Nightingale on the Radio 1 request show over the intro is that this is basically a Looks Unfamiliar request show. I'm aware that we picked up quite a few new listeners recently. I thought it would be nice to give them a kind of introduction to where we're up to and what we've been doing so far, but rather than just do a regular compilation of the sort that I do, you know, every six shows, I thought I'd ask the listeners to suggest their favourite sections of their favourite shows so I could put them all into a nice, neat collection for you here. The only thing was... Everyone suggested pretty much every bit of every show. And obviously, I couldn't even represent every show because, you know, there's over 50 of them now. And I'm sorry to anyone who didn't make the cut. There's quite a few people who haven't found their way into this. I had to take the ones that were voted for the most. So here are the 12 most requested ones, which I hope you enjoy. And I hope that afterwards, you then go and listen to all these shows and the others in full. One of the things that they don't mention in it is your next choice, Bob, which is... Giant Hogweed. No, I'm not saying for a second that Giant Hogweed is a lost part of British pop culture that people will not remember. Because Giant Hogweed, contrary to the efforts of many garden clearance firms over the last (laughs) couple of centuries, is very much still with us. I go walking quite a lot along local riverbanks and I see it all the time. This is specifically a report on John Craven's news round that I've managed to date to... 1982, and I'm assuming early summer 1982, because that's when Giant Hogweed starts to flourish. (laughs) Giant Hogweed, for those that are unaware, it is a pretty nasty plant. It grows on riverbanks, it grows to pretty terrifying heights, it can Mm. be 8, 9, 10 feet tall. It does have poisonous sap to the extent where if Giant Hogweed sap lands on your skin, it will turn that skin incredibly photosensitive. The sap is phototoxic. Can you tell I've researched this in quite some time? I can. Yeah, have you got the Latin name? Because I've got that Oh, come on, let's have it. It's Heraculeum mantigazanium. It even sounds nasty. If you get giant hogweed on your skin, effectively what will happen is that your skin will blister really nastily within about 30 minutes. But that, realistically, is the extent of the damage. However, Mm. I am convinced that in early summer 1982, the avuncular, the genial John Craven, ran a news report on the dangers of giant hogweed, essentially in the style of great public information films, warning children to stay away from it because it was nasty and they could get blisters if they played with it and got the sap on their skin. However, the the sting in the tail here, and I'm convinced I've got this right because uh, none of that would have stuck in my mind otherwise. I think at some point during that news report, John Craven turned his steely gaze down the television camera and said, it might even kill you. And that, for me, was the next year of my life ruined. <laughs> not only did I become phobic of giant hogweed, which was, you know, was not, a, not a plant that I was going to encounter no. every single day of my life. You know, it wasn't marching up the drive to our front door. Not only did I become phobic of it, I became phobic of riverbanks in general, because as far as I was concerned, if you went to a riverbank, you were going to fall into a nest of giant hogweed (laughs) and die. There were no two ways about it. (laughs) This came to a head at the 10th birthday party of my good friend Paul Clark, which again I've dated to the summer of 1982, (laughs) because as Paul Clark's birthday treat, we went to see Rocky (laughs) 2 at the cinema. I like where this is going. (laughs) 
films. But then, as a treat after the film screening, we went back to Paul Clark's house. Now, Paul Clark's house, uh, you see the, the horror that is about to unfold here. Paul Clark's house backed on to the River Leven, which is a subsidiary of the River Tees. And his garden, he had a sloping back garden. At the bottom of the garden was the riverbank. We were told by his mum, uh, you know, that the hula hoops and the sausage rolls will be ready for you in uh, <laughs> a, about half an hour's time. What? I mean, obviously, we'd, we'd seen Rocky too, like, you know, <laughs> in the previous three hours of the afternoon. Why she hadn't got her finger out and prepared them during those those three hours, I have no idea. I feel like being appallingly unfair to Mrs. Clark here. But ten of us marched down to the riverbank. As you can imagine, giant hogweed was in full flight, and I'd seen it on John Craven's news round. I knew what it looked like. The extraordinary thing about giant hogweed and its appeal to ten-year-olds is that when it's dry, it makes for a phenomenally effective lightsaber. So the other nine kids in the party immediately turned into Jedi. It was like a fight from the Bash Street kids. It was like a, a cloud of dust with fists and boots and bits of giant hogweed sticking out of it. I, as you can imagine, just I ran. I, I <laughs> never shifted so quickly in my life. Ran straight up the sloping garden back to the house and had to throw myself upon the mercy of Mrs. Clark, who, like, not unreasonably, was entirely like bemused. And my fear of giant hogweed stayed with me for, I would say, the rest of 1982, possibly into 1983. It only really began to subside when I discovered that the world was teetering on the brink of a nuclear apocalypse. But the giant hogweed would have survived the blast, surely. You would <laughs> imagine so, yeah, yeah, you know, and it's particularly nasty stuff. I don't remember the John Craven report, but I'll come back to how I knew about giant hogweed in a minute. Okay. But I tried to find it, and I couldn't, but I can't believe that he might have gone a bit over the top about it because one thing I did find was he was still writing about Giant Hogweed, the Country File magazine in 2015. No! And warning about its menace. He was! Spread. Yes! Sensational! It, I didn't know this! He's, he's obsessed! Have you got a quote? The man is obsessed! <laughs> <laughs> I haven't sadly, but... Oh my! But the, the other things I found out, just before I come to my own anecdote, were two things. Just, Genesis did the song about the threat of Giant Hogweed. Indeed they did. But being Genesis, they had to start with a bit about Hugh Garth and how it got yes. delivered there by a very posh man or something. Yes. The other thing is, the EU have been regularly funding the giant alien programme to move giant hogweed from the UK. Right. So, yeah, cheers, Nigel. Let's hope it comes for you first. So in the event of Brexit, giant hogweed will be, will will be, be rampant. It, will be, it, it finally will be marching up the drive to get me. What I remember was, because I don't remember the, like I say, the Newsround report, I remember there being a column on it in the Liverpool Echo, one of those weird, smudgy, okay. like, falling off the edge of the page columns they used to have where there'd be like two lines where the line spacing was different to the rest of it. Right. But warning that it had been spotted on the Wirral and that children were not to go near ah, it. So there was something in the air at the time. There then. was, there was. And the main reason it sticks in my mind was one of my sisters did not get on with some children down the road. She saw them playing with some reeds but they found something went up and said, that's giant hogweed and they ran off <laughs> screaming. Was it giant hogweed? It wasn't. It was, it was, right, it was okay. like, It was false flag giant yes, hogweed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still, you know, I'm walking along a riverbank now and yeah. I see some. I still will give it a wide berth. <laughs> you just made me think there with Trump saying, I am the giantest hogweed. <laughs> well, just sad giant hogweed thinks it's giant than me. <laughs> well, this is the thing, like, I'm not, 
Yeah, ironically enough, I'm not remotely scared of nuclear apocalypse anymore, but I still give a little bit of a wide berth to giant hogweed. Well, I'm sure if you took Donald Trump as well, you'd come out in blisters. <laughs> I do, well, that's possibly, possibly true. Yeah, you're probably made of it. But yeah, it was weird how you did used to get those. I mean, in this case, it was facilitated by the media, but like yeah. playground bogeymen that were just things in nature. Because I remember, I don't, I've never done whether this was regional or not, mm. but just think about people believed it was sort of worm called a bloodsucker. And very oh, often yeah. in the playground, the crime would go around, it was always a girl would say, ah, there's a bloodsucker, and everyone would run to the nearest place that could stand above the ground. Ah. Well, this poor little worm was just no, on it its was, own. So it was a worm in your, on side. it was a fly. Which, you know, it's not on They were in it I mean, together. They're, they're, <laughs> yeah, they were in league. The worms and the flies. <laughs> when they got together, it was <laughs> murder. <laughs> so I know on side it was absolutely a fly, which mm. is uh, not unreasonable. There are flies out there that will suck your blood. But I don't think there are many of them on side in the 1970s and 80s. Mm. Was the worm purported it will take all of your blood? Oh, yes, yeah. It you would will be, be on you, you and just instantly yeah. you'd be like... Uh, you'd be a husk. At, at the end of Temple of Doom. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> like a withered husk yeah. on the playground. I mean, are there any other animals around the country purported to be blood suckers? I don't know. There may be regional area. It might be like the ITV regional listings <laughs> 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 Yeah, like the weird bits where you saw the programmes where you didn't know what they were. Wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Just said in time to use blood sucker. Yes, in Wiltshire, there's a blood sucking cat that goes around the primary school playground. There it is. There it is. Like I say, it's about as close as we're going to get to your next choice, which is a doll called Havoc. So Havoc was this doll produced by Mary Quant. She had all these licensed products and she did two dolls. One was Daisy, who everyone remembers. She had beautiful curly hair and an amazing wardrobe, including a kind of PVC red belted raincoat. I remember exactly from the catalogue. And my mother did get me daisies, but she also got me a Havoc. And Havoc had a zip-up scuba suit and a kind of short Mary Quant bob. And she was supposed to be like a kind of super spy. But because it was the early 70s and I had incredibly stereotyped ideas about masculinity and femininity, I considered her um, a sort of stand-in man for my daisies to fall in love with because she had short hair and, mm. and sort of was wearing trousers. Well, I was going to say, I, I, I've never seen Havoc before, but I looked up some photographs. She looks like if somebody mistaken Jane Asher for a cake and tried to decorate her face, oh, enormous that, makeup. No, I'd say she's more, she is more like Monica VT in Modesty Blaze. She has, yes, you know, yeah. and she's got, and she actually has makeup on. She's got kind of big, those big daisy eyes with the kind of giant 1960s, 1930s style eyelashes. And yeah, I, I think, I look at her, I think it's unfathomable what that I thought she would do as a man. But mm. my brother wouldn't let me play with any of his action then. And so I had to find someone for all my my plots. Mm. So, <laughs> so she did. And uh, yeah, I think, she, I think there were versions of her that came with, you know, sort of a gun and mm. stuff. So she was pretty damn cool. Well, I saw the advertising blurb for it, which said, with the skills and daring to surmount every hazard, outwit every foe, and all the gear she needs for her fantastic adventures, collect all her gear. So they weren't being subtle about it, they were saying, buy all the accessories. Yeah, but the accessories were things um, to carry out missions. They were handbags. And again, Mm, you look at, you know, how many years did it take before they bought out Vet Barbie? Um, Mm. It was ahead of its time. It really was. And yeah, I wish I kept on to. She's quite short though. That was a bit annoying. Were there any other figures in the range? Do you know? Or? I think um, I think internationally they sold her in pink and stuff, which needed to defeat the purpose. Yeah. But basically, she was she was just in a black zip-up scuba suit. Mm. And yeah, as I say, look back and you think how 
fantastically cool and modern that was. And there was also Action Girl, which you may well know, who was Action Man's female equivalent. See, I never knew that. I knew there was Action Man's mate with a beard, I can't remember the name oh. of who... <laughs> so this is, this is a trauma for my brother, that he had a load of Action Men, you had scars and different mm. uniforms and that weird knobbly hair. And Action Girl kind of came in a, um, a jumpsuit, a flared jumpsuit with a lovely long patterned sash, very 60s, long hair. And in the box, I've seen packaging, she came in a box where she's sort of standing there and there's a bunch of soldiers in a jeep behind her. Mm. And you think, you wouldn't really want a package like that now. But the idea no, is that yeah. she's sort of, a, um, she's ready for action. Mm. That still sounds wrong. Yeah, she was supposed to be, again, a bit like Havoc, yeah. a sort of secret agency person. And again, I was about three to be fair, but I remember having to get my mother to force my brother to let us have a wedding between my action girl and one of his action girls. <laughs> and we actually had a formal ceremony and the whole family was there. And Well, there's an interesting <laughs> adjunct to that, which is, not many people remember this, but in addition to He-Man, there was the She-Ra range, supposedly for girls. Oh yeah. One of my sisters was very indignant about that because she, her attitude was, why can't girls like He-Man? At least she existed as a character in her own right. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know, I think the thing is, you can look back at your own childhood and work out what you played with. And of course there were loads of kids who probably didn't care about gender and they played with whatever they wanted and their parents let them. I actually had somehow managed to absorb incredibly stereotypical ideas and although I had action girls and havoc, I made them play quite conventional princessy things. Mm. They didn't really have spy adventures. But it just shows that you can escape from that and I grew up and I became a feminist. I mean, ac I mean what's interesting about action men is it was such a defined idea of masculinity, mm. wasn't it? It was military and it was British. But they were lovely and they were quite realistic. And well, I loved the scars. Well, I only ever had the space action man because uh, I didn't find the military one quite in really that interesting. Yeah. It's too realistic. My, well, I didn't like the, you know, the idea of playing battle. So it would be more interesting if he might meet aliens or robots well, or if he went in the fridge because that was an ice planet. But. Yes, yeah, that's good. Well, also, but you could tie handkerchiefs and then they could parachute down up over the banisters. See, I never actually did that. I think I was too frightened of breaking it and not getting another one. And they had grippable hands. You could yes, the, the, the real gripping hands, as they were called, yeah. which they weren't real, so it was a bit false advertising. They had strange hair. They all had hair mm. like Russ Tamblin. Russ Tamblin, brother of Larry Tamblin, out of the 60s band, The Standells. That's my favourite fact mm. in the world. That I did not know. Yeah. Russ Tamblin's career. Mm. He's an amazing actor. I think he's yeah. been quite um, short-changed. Yeah, he was in Twin Peaks, wasn't he? I yes, he was. Yeah. But I think he's done interviews where he feels there was, I don't know why, but he just sort of got stopped getting parts. I think he was treated as being an acrobat and not an actor. But he was an amazing actor. He was a yeah. head story. Well, Tom Thumb, which is still not available on DVD. Why is that? Really? I mean, yeah. there are a few films that I'm surprised are available on DVD. Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter, the Herman's Hermits film, where to supplement their income as pop stars, they buy a greyhound. They sing songs as part of the plot. That's not on DVD. Work is a four-letter word, surprisingly, the Silver Black film. I think people just forget that some of these films existed, really, because not nobody's now. been not, that not interested. Not with podcasts in... like yours, Tim. Yeah. Nothing well, is thank you. forgotten. <laughs> Otley isn't out on DVD. Oh. That one isn't, is it? Yeah. I love that. Yeah. See, I used to say that was my favourite film, and mm. I've only seen it twice on um, on telly in the afternoon. Mm. And I think once I tried to tape it. I might even have half of it somewhere. Yeah. But I love that film. That's a Clement Lafrenia film. It was one of those ones that just turned up on an afternoon when you happened to be home from school or that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, it was based on a novel, apparently, as well. Yes, yeah. Um, but yeah, Romy Schneider being lovely. Yeah. And weird. And but one day I'll get that DVD of Smashing Time. 
Yeah, so what's the story about why Smashing Time's not available? I've no idea, because it was in that, that amazing uh, 60s exhibition at the... Yeah. At um, the V&A, um, wasn't it? The V&A a couple of years ago. They had a huge extract of Smashing Time playing on the loop, so it is there, it's available, so I don't know why it's not out. I know. It's and just it, be overlooked. I can remember the last time it turned up on TV, it was on at something like 1.30 in the morning on Channel 4, and it would have been um, early 2000s, because I can remember where I was living at the time. But it's, it gets screening at the BFI once in a blue moon. Yeah. Jenny! What was Boots Global Collection? I'm going to sound quite boring if I just say it was a range of toiletries. But it was it was my favourite ever range of toiletries. They did it was like the early 90s, early to mid 90s, and it was based on just sort of generic themes from around the world. So you had like 50s American style peppermint lip gloss and stuff. You had sort of Oriental bubble bath and stuff like that. You had a weird selection of stuff with like a polar theme called like ice cube stuff and it was all brilliant but I can never find any reference to it anywhere whenever I google any combination of these words I just get pictures of actual boots on people's <laughs> feet and there's a, there's just one time I found one picture of like some ice cube soap and that was it but the thing is I'm, I'm obsessed with tracking down these sort of toiletries from my childhood because when I was in sort of year five year six ish there were some girls in my class, and oh, they were so grown up. It was amazing. And we were all like, oh, my God, I want to be like them. Because the one thing they used to do was they'd go to Boots, and they'd buy peach-flavoured fizzy water. And we're like, oh, my fucking God, that's so grown up. And we're there, like, with, with like, um, Capricorn and on Bongo. And they're just, like, drinking the equivalent of, I guess, Pinot Grigio. And they had boyfriends, and they had they own sanitary towels. It didn't matter that we didn't know what they were for. We still had some. And it was this whole thing of wanting to be grown up. You know, you, you get into that age where you want to be a teenager. So you start acting like a teenager. And this kind of sums up that period in my life. I would love to get my hands on some. It will probably stink of piss, like, if I manage to get a bottle of something on eBay. Well, they're probably at the back of a lot of bathroom cupboards, I suspect, because they seem like the sort of thing that would have been given as presents and probably, in many cases, not used very much. I mean, I went looking through a couple of magazines to see what I could find. The only things that I could find, two references, there was a column in The Independent in 1994, just sniggering at the names of them, because there were things like Palm Balm, Snowshoe Cooling Foot Gel, Crowning Glory Hair Mask, Clear Off facial wash which are quite liked and also face oasis which is a beauty mask which i think they must have had that planned for about a year before it was launched and probably didn't realize that oasis were going to appear just when they released it so i wonder if they got extra sales on the back of that i wonder but i wonder if your average oasis fan back then would have shopped at boots for face mask i'm not sure well the other thing i found was i did find a launch advert for it where some of the descriptions I mean, this is only 1994. It's not like it's the late 50s or anything. But some of these descriptions of the exotic delights to be found in the range, I don't know if you could do them now. I mean, one says, even if you don't have a magic carpet to transport you to the exotic east, you can enjoy a Turkish bath of your very own with its rich, luxurious cream bath, enhanced with rose extract to soothe and silk, protein to help moisture, Turkish bath will leave your skin feeling soft and smooth, massage not included. (laughs) And uh, the other one that really leapt out at me was, the people of Ashima are famed for having luxurious hair. Ashima, Japan is a traditional source of natural Camila extract, renowned for its softening and cleansing benefits. 
the wonders of their world are now yours to enjoy. <laughs> it's just, that is appalling, even for them. Now, I'm not big on shouting at the past and saying, behave yourself, because, you know, you can't change what's been done. But even then, I would have thought, hang on, that's not right, really. Oh, I never did. I, I thought it was great. Because, you know, we didn't have much money when I was growing up, and we basically just went to Ingramalls on holiday. So I'd never really been anywhere. And I was like, oh, my God, this is, this is so exotic. This is fantastic. I bet they actually use this stuff in, like, Japan. <laughs> Well, the main reason I remember these is I've searched high and low for any of these. I can't find any. There was an ad campaign where, I don't know if you remember, but just before the Ladette became the archetype for women in adverts, it was a different kind of thing. It was kind of fresh-faced, giggly, intellectual women, usually on (laughs) tropical beaches, as they were in this series of adverts, drinking, you know, those huge cocktails with umbrellas sticking out. And a sort of hunky doctor came by and prescribed them items from this range and it was you know the kind of they'd always end with a joke kind of ah oh, wouldn't mind getting my hands on his emergency medical supplies <laughs> and those adverts because i think i fancied one of the women and that's all i knew of this range of things in fact it's weird how even that kind of archetype's been forgotten about now because i even remember there was a joke kind of based on that in lee and herring's fist of fun in the i'm not explaining this to anyone listening who's not seen it but where pestilence the, the horseman of the apocalypse was a milkman yeah. <laughs> there, was, <laughs> there were kind of characters based on that sort of ad persona and that's sort of disappeared now i wouldn't know I, I don't know i suspect you're getting a bit too highbrow for me now archetypes and i i just mostly talk about biscuits i'll be honest so you know i've got nothing to add to this conversation unless we'll stop doing knob gags mitch what were two-stage self-assembly ice cream two-stage self-assembly ice cream cones from the 1970s ice cream was a very different beast in the 1970s the way it was sold and the way it was consumed was different it was mainly sold as a sort of individual lolly ices mainly from like news agents and also there were like two principal brands there was walls and there was lion's maid they were kind of the marvel and dc of ice cream uh, because shops would sell one or the other but not both so there was obviously some kind of deal that you would do with walls yeah. or lion's maid that they would be your ice cream supplier and that never the twain would meet and my local street shop mr farthings on allerton road was a walls shop and as such i would find lion's maid shop slightly disorientating <laughs> I'd like, oh no, it's a Lions made shop. I don't know which ones I like. Oh, and then you would get, you know, your tubs that you could buy in the supermarket, generally of that rock hard, bright yellow vanilla stuff. Hagendas was a million years in the future, <laughs> um, as was Ben and Jerry's. Did they eat them on Orion? Did they? Very possibly, yes. The thing was then how to sell ice cream cones, still a very popular ice cream format, within this ice cream vending framework. Because the way one gets an ice cream cone now, even then, of course, you could get ice cream cones from the ice cream van where you get that weird semi-fredo gelatin, the stuff that apparently Margaret Thatcher invented. But of course, you're not going to get that in a newsagent because a newsagent is not going to install one of those machines. And you're kind of your gelateria ice cream parlors where they've got it all in the big buckets under glass and then they scoop it out to the proper waffle cones. Again, that had not yet appeared. So the only way of getting an ice cream, uh, the way they finally got round it, I guess, was the Cornetto. 
By packing the ice cream all the way down to the bottom of the corner and then sealing the whole thing in paper, you could finally sell ice cream cones out of the big chest freezer in a newsagent's. And I remember the, and I guess Cornetto is what finally put paid to the item I'm about to describe. Because I remember a Cornetto emerging in about 1977, 1978. And also horrifying people by how expensive it was. <laughs> because it was about 30p for a Cornetto, if you remember. Yeah. And this, and this was at a time when ice creams were like, 8p. So Cornetto is just like an outrageous extravagance. Previous to that, what they had was this. And the place I particularly remember buying these was the Cafe Stroke ice cream kiosk in the middle of Calderstones Park. Whoa, that's brought back memories. Oh, yeah. Wait, you I mean it, it was, was actually open at one point? Oh, yeah. It was seemed to be it, shuttered. No, I know, I know. It, it, the, the ice cream the, in, in Calderstones Park, which is in the bit of Liverpool where Tim and I grew up, there is a big old kind of stately home in the middle of it. I suspect the park was, was originally the grounds of this home. And when I was very, very little, there was a cafe opening there. There's another cafe opening there now, but it's in a slightly different part of the park. It's around the back of the Japanese garden in a kind of stables. But um, they're renovating Calderstones Hall right now. So hopefully it's going to be because they also had a kind of weird open air stage around the back of it where they used to put shows on in the summer. Yes. Um, I saw Candy Flip perform there. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God. God, that's extraordinary. I'm mean, too, too many eras clashing into each other now. But, <laughs> but anyway, that is the place I principally remember buying these. Here was the solution that was found to selling ice cream cones from a newsagent's or just cafeteria. It would be sold in two stages. The proprietor would have behind the counter a supply of rectangular ice cream cones. So <laughs> these are ice cream cones which are basically in the shape of an extended flattened pyramid so it tapers to a point at the far end but then it has four flat diverging sides ending in a rectangular aperture so this is what you've got you've got a weirdly rectangular ice cream cone they would be kept in a kind of cardboard box behind the counter and if you wanted an ice cream cone you would get that from the proprietor and from the freezer you would get something which looked for all the world like a small block of butter (laughs) and what it was was a rectangular slab of vanilla ice cream and it was then up to you to carefully unwrap this slab of vanilla ice cream at one end feed that end into the rectangular aperture of that rectangular ice cream cone and then ease the paper off the other end of this block of ice cream. And then, congratulations, you have now assembled your ice cream cone. It's this two-stage self-assembly ice cream cones. And I don't know what the hell made me think of those. But I remember that that's how, if you wanted an ice cream cone, before the rise of the Cornetto, if you wanted to get an ice cream cone from a newsagent, if you didn't want a strawberry midi and you didn't want a Sky Ray or any of the other sort of ice lolly variants, you wanted some actual ice cream, that's what you did. There was another option, though, which was you could have gone to the classic yeah. cinema on Allerton Road oh, and I got did. a king cone without going to see the film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which well, I classic, did more than once. The classic was where I saw everything. There's a fascinating show on Netflix called The Toys That Made Us, which yes. uh, has, you know, anybody who's into this podcast should definitely have that. It's not all applicable if you're British because some of it is about toy lines that didn't really happen here. But the one which is about Star Wars is quite fascinating because it, it, it outlines something which I'd forgotten is the reason 
reason Star Wars was the first movie to be heavily merchandised is you didn't bother making merchandise for movies because movies literally existed for a week before the advent of the multiplex. A movie came out. It was on your local flea plate for a week. The week rolled round and something else was on. So there was no point merchandising movies because movies occupied the popular consciousness for literally seven days. You know, you merchandise TV shows in the 70s because they were on for a good few months a year and they'd probably be back next year. So it was worth producing an entire line of merch for it. It didn't even occur to anybody to make, because, I mean, one of the things that the show's about is, of course, the fact that the movie Star Wars came out in, in, in 77. There was this mad rush to get merch lines on, and they couldn't actually get them in the shops in time for Christmas. So you ended up having to buy, basically, certificates. You know, this is to certify that you've actually bought Luke Skywalker, although he's not going to be in the <laughs> shop until February. You know, they actually they actually had to sell like certificates for Star Wars figures in Christmas 77 because it's only after the movie came out it occurred to everybody that it was the biggest merchandising opportunity of the 20th century because people didn't make movie merch because movies didn't last long enough in the popular consciousness. They came out, they were on for a week and they went away. Weird, isn't it? Well, I just want to dial back a bit to your point about Walls and Lions May being like the Marvel yeah. PC of ice cream. They were. Which yes. one was which? Because I've got a theory about which was which. Walls was Marvel and Lions Made was DC. <laughs> Exactly, because I always you. saw <laughs> Lions Made as being... A, it always felt a bit kind of goody two-shoes Lions It felt a bit made. austere, didn't it? It felt yes, a bit austere. Yes. Walls was funkier. Anarchic. Wal- yeah. Walls was a bit anarchic, and Lions Made felt a bit uptight and austere. Much as Marvel, certainly in the 70s, was much funkier than DC. DC always felt a bit stuffy. You know, even now, Marvel comics seem to belong in the 70s, and, and DC seems to belong in the 40s. I think that's possibly one of the reasons they're having such difficulty getting any levity into the DC movies, because those characters don't lend themselves to levity as well as the, the, the Marvel ones do. Absolutely because they're not. they're not being thought up by Stan Lee, who, whatever else he was, was a damn good time. Stan Lee knew how to enjoy himself, and that used to, <laughs> and that used to come through the com- the comic books that Stanley was having the best time making all this stuff. DC often feels a bit worthy, you know, and I think yeah. that's one of the reasons why they're having real difficulty trying to settle on a tone for the DC movies, whereas the Marvel stories are just much more immediately cinematic. They just are. How do you think Stanley would have coped with the two-stage self-assembly ice cream? Character? I don't think he would have bothered. First of all, he probably would have sent some minions out to some pro- <laughs> to some proper Italian gelateria and got him the real thing. <laughs> Steve Ditko, on the other hand, would have thought that ice creams were decadent. <laughs> <laughs> he'd, he'd have been like that. No, he'd have been like that bit in head where Peter Talk holds the ice cream until it melts. Jack Kirby would have designed his own ice cream. Jack Kirby probably, <laughs> yeah, in fact, that's probably where we got the Cornetto. <laughs> it was an ice cream cone designed by Jack Kirby. Nothing to go with your next choice, Mark, which is? It's Amazing Monsters. There were a series of books that stylistically, they sort of felt when you looked at them from the front cover, they looked a bit like Mr. Men books. And I suspect that wasn't a coincidence. I suspect that was deliberate. I never actually owned a copy of any of these books, but my my friend, who was my best friend at the time when I was about eight or nine, there's a guy called Stephen Aston, and he had some of these books. And they were about all different creatures. I think the, the chief protagonist of the, the books was this amazing, he was supposed to be uh, like, a, like a professor of monsterology or something, and he, he would curate information about these monsters, and sometimes he would appear in the stories, I think. And there's only really one I remember in a lot of detail. There were a few that, that Stephen had. I think he had Webfoot and the Winky Bird. 
think he had Big Nose and Wormball as well. But the one that I remember, and I actually remember in a lot of detail, is Green Eye. It was this kind of yellow bell-shaped monster with green eyes, and everything that Green Eye looked at turned green. And I just remember the details of the story. I particularly remember towards the end that he's walking in a park in London and he sees the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister turns green. And once the Prime Minister's been turned green, they decide that all they can really do is make sure that everyone turns green because there's nothing they can do. They can't reverse the process. So in the end, Green Eye's job is just to sit there and just look at everyone. I think any time a new baby is born, Green Eye looks at the baby and the baby turns green and then everything. And as long as everyone's green, then it's fine. Also, a little quirk of these books is that they were clearly illustrated by a child. And I think when I was a kid, I thought they'd been written by a child as well. But it turns out when I looked into this a little while ago that it's actually written by a man who was, I think, I can't remember his name, but he wrote... He was like quite a famous economist or uh, used to work in the markets. He was quite famous in that area. Jim Slater. Yeah, that's it. Yes. And his 10 year old son did the illustrations for the books. I think they were published in kind of 1979, 1980. So I think his son was about 10 years old at the time. That was one of the things that really drew me to it because, you know, these pictures had been drawn using, I think, kind of felt tip pens. And had clearly been drawn by someone who was roughly my age. I could probably have drawn similar illustrations to the ones that were in the book. And I think that was a bit of a hook for me. But I don't know anyone who remembers these books now. Well, I remember them because I actually had two of them. I had Wormball and The Great Gulper. And it's interesting that you brought up the thing about Green Eye turning the Prime Minister green, so therefore everyone had to be green, because there was quite a bit of... When I say satire, it wasn't loaded satire. It was just saying to kids, don't be fooled by these people. Don't be reverent to them. Never think people are necessarily your betters. Because the great gulper, the whole plot of that, was that there's an oil slick, that there's a, I think maybe an international standoff over, and the great gulper just likes drinking liquids, and he drinks the whole oil slick. But there is a sequel where, I think it's called Seven for the Gulper, but inspired by the great gulper, a Dr. Crank tries to monetize his skill by making a machine that can drink more liquid. And that then turns into another international incident and the gulpers called in to rescue the excess of liquid that's generated by this, <laughs> this standoff. So it's quite unsophisticated stuff, but it's the kind of thing that I really, I really appreciated when I was a kid. Wormball was quite odd, really. I mean, in some ways, I think there was an environmental message in it, but it's basically, it's a worm who eats anything round. And whenever he eats it, he gets bigger. And they don't know what to do about him. Eventually, they blast him into space and he eats the moon, <laughs> which wasn't explored in the other books, as far as I know. I don't, I don't think Webfoot ran up against the missing moon. But <laughs> actually, that's the plot of Ogden's Nut Gone Flake by the small faces, isn't it? <laughs> but there was a kind of thing about you are right about the illustrations. They are very well done for a child, but they're clearly by a child. But I think there was a craze for that around then because there were those. How old was the girl who did the garden gang? And I'm sure there were other things like that. It was more of a rarity, really. I mean, these days, you know, you you just have to look on Facebook and you see drawings by everyone's child every two minutes. But yes, to see them actually published in a in a book that was clearly available in the shops and had been, you know, published lots and lots of times, you know, lots of copies. Uh, and, and also it ran for, I think there were about 16 of them. Um, so it's not like it was just a flash in the pan, just a couple of them. There were, there were quite a few. I suppose when you're a child, your world is so small, isn't it, that anything that kind of encroaches on your world you think is massive and you think that everyone must be into but actually you, you're just in a little series of silos aren't you and uh, people just remember different things well it's completely random what gets remembered as well i mean if you remember recently there was a kind of a meme going around on twitter where it was like what one thing about your vocation do people outside it not understand and my answer which i didn't really put much thought into and all i thought was the more true it was is that every cultural thing no matter how forgotten it has now had some degree of public profile 
at the time. And, you know, that even goes to, I mean, it was astonished recently that a 60s band called Fortis Mentum, who didn't really do that well, as far as I thought, but looking for something else in an old issue of TV Times, I found a feature on Pop Sensation Fortis Mentum, a three-page feature about how they were the next big thing, with photos of them in their Granny Takes a Trip finery. Sometimes you look at things and think, you know, you assume nobody was interested at the time. But there always were people interested. The only other ones I remember was Webfoot, who I think Webfoot might be the shapeshifter, but the webbed feet always gave it away. That was it, yes. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, because on the front cover he's a clock. But actually yes. he, could be, he could be anything. Yes, that's right. Yeah. But it was always the web. The web feet were the one thing that always stayed the same. And there was the tricky troggle who, all I can remember is it was a troggle that was tricky. As I assume troggles aren't normally by the sound of it. Yeah, it should have just been done with it and called it the trouble with troggles. Okay, Jeff, what was The Last American? The Last American was a limited comic series that came out in the early 1990s, which was part of a wave of of limited edition comics that were coming around at that time, done by 2000 AD artists and writers who finally got a chance to, to do work in America, kind of based off the success of, of Watchmen, which was done by Alan Moore and, and Dave Gibbons, who were both 2000 AD creatives for, for a long time. Uh, but The Last American was written by Alan Grant and John Wagner, who wrote Judge Dredd for a huge amount of time. They neither of them created Judge Dredd, but they were basically written Judge Dredd for about 20 years. And Mike McMahon, who was a very influential uh, 2008 artist who really, although he didn't create Judge Dredd, helped define Judge Dredd. And this was probably the only really big strip that Mike McMahon drew for American comics that I can remember. And both Alan Grant and John Wagner did go on to be successful in American comics because they were a Batman for a long time. But um, The Last American is quite a quirky cartoon strip, very much in the, t- in the 2008 mentality, which I thought was brilliant. Um, but I've never found anybody else who's, who's ever read it, and it's not really been heavily reprinted. And it was about a uh, colonel in the American army who committed some sort of never clearly defined crime. <laughs> and for his punishment, he's put into a suspended animation by the president to be awoken in the case of, of nuclear war, and to be the, the, the last representative of the American state who will find whatever state America is, is in after a nuclear war and ensure that uh, American values are, are reinstated. And this indeed happens at the start of the, the comic is him being uh, woken up by three war robots who have been left to look after him. And they're very 2008-ish characters. They're, they're like uh, cool and bizarre, sarcastic robots. And, and he, he's, he's quite a cynical guy as well. And they get into a super tank that they've been given, which is very 2008-ish as well. <laughs> and they head out into post-apocalypse America to, to uh, re-establish the American way of life. And then through uh, about 120 pages and four issues, they get they then proceed to find no trace of life whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. And it basically becomes this, this bleak uh, uh, commentary on the fact that nobody would actually survive a severe <laughs> nuclear war. Nobody would be left. And there's constantly like, oh, has he found a town where um, there's going to be a, 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 a bunch of survivors there who are holed up 
uh, fighting over resources and he goes there and no it's just a radio that's been left on <laughs> really, if he goes to the um the deep the deep coal mines in, in a certain state and it's all on kind of the um the east coast of america kind of new england and places like that if he goes to either if he goes to pennsylvania and he goes to the uh, deep coal mines where people have survived there and he goes to the deep coal mines and the coal seams have been set set on fire by the nuclear wars and have been burning for 40 years so no there's no love there and and it's just fantastic sort of subversion of that idea of the post-apocalyptic adventure that, that you know this 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 brave guy with all this fantastic kit is gonna gonna have adventures and what what he what we find is just nothingness and bleakness <laughs> do you know what it sounds like to me just to summarize uh, demolition man meets the road it is very much the road for kids actually oh is it oh my god <laughs> Noticed that the main character is called Ulysses S. Pilgrim. <laughs> Why do they keep giving them those terrible names? <laughs> it's kind of nominative determination as well. Did they really wake up thinking, oh, hang on, why have I been transported to be the founder of the new America and I'm a general as well? What's what's happening? What, why me? <laughs> I mean, it's okay calling him Ulysses, but why Ulysses S? Do you mean, why couldn't it be Ulysses P? Ulysses P. Pilgrim. Or Ulysses P. Pilgrim. <laughs> so, Nobody would ever know. <laughs> but ultimately, I mean, it's a beautifully illustrated. And uh, Mike McMahon kind of started off with kind of a fairly sort of street, street-laced, action-packed comic book style. But throughout the 80s and 90s, his style just got weirder and weirder and weirder. And it was still very uh, good comic book art, very easy to see what was going on. But the, the people would just become more stylized. And it's almost like Picasso-like sometimes, uh, the drawings. It's like really strange, distorted faces. So I think maybe between the incredibly bleak subject matter and the, the fairly abstract art for an adventure, a strip that looks like it's going to be an adventure, um, it probably no, they just, just didn't find an audience. And I, I, mm. I've never seen any sign of it being reprinted. And, and they, reprint, really, they reprint everything in comics. So yeah. it, must, it must have been quite, quite the flop. But I thought, I thought it was very, very interesting and unusual comic book. Well, I, one reason could be, I did read, this is on a Wikipedia page, so citation mm. needed, that Wagner and Grant fell out while they were writing oh, it. So that's interesting. I don't know if that's got any bearing on mm. it, whether they, it's kind of like a sort of oasis thing. Oh, <laughs> they won't so, go back yeah, to it because yeah. of swearing well this, swearing well that. Or, I mean, I guess the difficulty... As Noel and Liam would say. I think the difficulty they would have had from a creative point of view is they, they would be forced to jump the shark by finding someone, wouldn't they? And well, probably trying to resist that. There's mm. a tiny hint at the end that he, he thinks he finds some tiny little trace of life, and he's like, mm. you know, after uh, despite being such a stoic character, by the end of it, he's just at the point of suicide, and he just finds some tiny little indication of life. Yeah. So it's like a very faint trace of hope right at the end of it. I mean, it is. But, that's a really interesting idea. Stephen King explores that idea in The Mist. Mm. Like spoiler alert for the book, but at the end of the book, the man, the main, the main guy, kind of hears something on the radio, and the word could be a town that he's near, or it could be the word hope, mm. and that sounds quite similar. You know, that's that's yeah. a that's a book where you where nobody wins, nobody survives, yeah. and but it's it does speak very well to the idea of survivor hope, and that's how people keep going. So it's, it's quite interesting. Mm. I wouldn't mind seeing that, but you think you can get it anywhere? No, I've got it. So You've got it. It's very rare. It's Oh, then I think best not then. <laughs> you can read it out to me. You can also always just watch Austin Powers, which is more or less the same story. It's even got the robots in it. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's another, another possibility for, for it, maybe, maybe I don't know, uh, 
why I didn't find it already. It's all it's like a classic comic book thing. The, the cover is often much more action-packed than, than the yeah. inside. And the covers were particularly action-packed with him like leaping and firing machine guns <laughs> with his giant robot, war robot companions firing giant spacesuits in the background. He's just doing it just... for shits and giggles. <laughs> <laughs> Like, like that guy Bush did back when you went to suspended animation? Or... <laughs> I, think, I guess who would have been president at that time? Probably Bush Senior or mm. maybe the first couple of years of Clinton. But it was completely in the 2008 kind of voice <laughs> of, you know, sarcastic and, and very cynical mm. about Amer American lifestyle. Uh, a way of life in general, which is, you know, so actually, although I love 2008, it's quite sanctimonious that all these British and Scottish writers are just like constantly, they don't critique Britain very much, they're just constantly <laughs> critiquing America. <laughs> okay, well, that was a clip of Alan Taylor on HTV's Orbit. Justin, I'm just going to let you explain this. This is Orbit, not the chewing gum, not the sitcom where William Orbit shared a flat with Ben Lee Brand and Trevor Horn lived in the basement. No. <laughs> was the theme just loads of orchestra hits for that? <laughs> No, this is another orbit, a very different orbit, I think you'll find. Long, long ago, when interactivity was still in short trousers, children's TV used to make programmes where viewers could write in for birthday greetings and messages and so on. You know, if you lived in the West Country, there was Gus Honeybun, uh, Puppet Rabbit, of course. If you lived in Scotland, there was the Glen Michael Cavalcade with Paladin the Talking Lamp, and the first I knew about that was Craig Ferguson doing stand-up about it. And uh, later, you know, Philip Schofield did the broom cupboard many years later. But if you lived in Wales and the west of England, like I did, then you would get Orbit, which was on HTV, which is our ITV station, on Saturdays between about, would have been about 73 and 76, I think. This was a programme where Alan Taylor, it was our sort of all-purpose regional presenter. It was on everything. So that would have been, you know, Richard Whiteley in Yorkshire or Tony Wilson up in the northwest where you were, uh, was sent into space. Was that a viewer's request, was it? Yeah. And maybe Alan Taylor was supposedly sent, he was Captain Alan Taylor was sent into space or rather sent into a spaceship set in a cupboard in Bristol with some kind of buzzing alien gonk called Chester who is clearly made out of a vacuum cleaner nozzle and the noise Chester make it sounds like regional sweep it's really it's really <laughs> strange I've been told, this is a theme emerging here, I've been told by my parents that I was absolutely terrified of Alan Taylor when I was a tiny child. I would start screaming whenever he would come on TV, and I don't think this was in a, a Beatlemania way. This was this was very much Alan mania. I think it was the mix of, it was Alan, whatever Chester was, it was more unsettling than the alien in, well, frankly, alien. Maybe he burst out of Alan's stomach, I don't know. <laughs> and a theme which, you know, it sounds like the HTV radiophonic workshop. I think the deal with Orbit is they get some correspondence, lots of postcards, and quite what happens after, I can't really remember. I think what it was, is it was, it was interactivity at a time when you didn't, you didn't really have many options. In the 70s, you basically had to send, you, you know, you'd send your postcard off and hope they read it out. And that would be, it was sort of, I suppose that was the closest we had to the internet in South Wales. A couple of other things about Alan Taylor. I mean, he did occasionally appear in things that got shown in other parts of the country. He did host um, Paint Along with Nancy Kaminsky, oh, which people yes. made yeah. for a bit. Not, not the whole run, but he did host a couple of series of that. 
And he also hosted one of the many regional variants on Mr. and Mrs., for which he wore a monocle. And I was very amused to find, only a few years ago, that Joan Bakewell, of all people, who was in 1978 the TV critic for The Times, actually wrote a whole column about an episode of Mr. and Mrs., hosted by Alan Taylor, that in her words, mysteriously ran out of contestants about two thirds of the way through and resorted to a sing song. And I've since and I've since discovered that the only reason that was probably shown on national television was because it was an alternative World Cup TV schedule. And I think England had just been knocked out of the tournament. And I think that's the only reason they showed it. She was very underwhelmed by it, let's say. Well, do you know, we had our own in Granada where I think it's only me that remembers it. It was called Hey, It's My Birthday 2, where ostensibly you could write in, um, you know, obviously say it's my birthday and they'd read out your birthday. But the only things I remember about it were it had the shortest, most cursory theme tune ever, which is a quacking <laughs> synth went wah, 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 and had a sort of animated boy like running down the street shouting you know with his hands against his mouth into the air obviously it was his birthday too and the crowd of sort of well wishes waved and the policeman did a comedy knees bending when was that when, when it, roughly would that have been late 70s early 80s because it was presented variously by people like these names will mean nothing to anyone who didn't grow up in the Granada region Charles Foster Bob Greaves of course TV's beardy man Jim Pope no, but that's what that's what he was known as to us as children he was beardy man and once great excitement went on New Year's Eve beardy man had clearly been handed some of the sherry before he came on to say happy New Year's <laughs> <laughs> Those names are all sort of... It's funny, isn't it, how regions sort of have these names that generally... I mean, I, you know, I vaguely know Bob Greaves, but the others, I, I, I just know the names because you hear people talk about the names and things, but I generally don't know who they are. And it's I think Alan Taylor would be would be the same, really. The other thing I was going to say about this, and one of the reasons I'm surprised that Granada did one of these, was that I always assumed that the reason that you seem to see these birthday programmes for quite large regions that had a lot of rural areas because wales and it's still like this now north wales and south wales could almost be different places because you know there's no real easy way of getting from one to the other and so as a result it feels hard to think of it as being an integrated place really and i think you know probably scotland has the same problem and you know there's sort of it does feel in some ways it feels united and in some ways it's everything feels quite a long way away because you're certainly not in Wales. We don't have big rail links and things like that. So uh, road links even. Anyway, we, we've 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 strayed somewhat from, <laughs> from Orbit discussion, but it's because I've only seen three minutes. For God's sake, if anybody has a complete episode of Orbit, I don't know why you would. But um, <laughs> if if somebody I mean, God, the three minutes on YouTube, who the hell picked that up? I can't imagine. But, you know, God bless whoever did it. Right. I'm sure you'll all be running down to the local video shop to get that out after listening to this. Emma, what was the film? That was Split Second, starring the wonderful Rutger Hauer. It's a post-apocalyptic climate change disaster film slash horror movie. Sets in 2008 and London has flooded, so, you know, just goes to show that they were basically prophesizing Boris, but... uh... It has some very unexpected cameos from people like Pete Postlethwaite, Ian Jury, Kim Cattrall is the love interest. And also Sarah Stockridge and the glam metal detectives. Yeah, indeed. Or I was Philadelphia ads, as I like to think of it. I was going to say, is that on her CV, but does she have a CV? 
<laughs> Philadelphia Ads glam metal. Split <laughs> second. That's a great CV. <laughs> but yeah, it, they, some friends of mine and I, as teenagers, went through this phase of watching a Rutger Howe film every weekend. There was a guy who used to deliver videos in a van. And now I've heard rumours he delivered more than videos in a van, but I never got wind of any of that but we would every saturday night while we were staying in with a few tinnies we would rent three films a new film we hadn't watched a rutger hauer film that wasn't split second and split second and split second was our absolute favorite favorite film to watch over and over and over again it's so bad it's amazing <laughs> it's just it is rutger hauer films have a few really basic elements that are really important to every single one of them he has to have an absolutely fantastic but almost throwaway line at least once a third in a split second without any context the throwaway throwaway lines actually are from his sidekick dick durkin which is the best psychic name ever. His his best line is big fucking girls. <laughs> we need big fucking. They just go around the armory of amazingly huge weaponry. <laughs> Too small, bigger fucking guns. Um, and then there's a bit where they they're talking about the thing that they're chasing. There's this serial killer on the list, and it turns out the serial killer is ten feet tall, has enormous teeth, and there's a lot of imagery in it. And that's Dick Durkin is a psychologist from Oxford, and you know, at first Harley Stone, which is Rutger Hauer's name. That's important to know because Harley Stone, hello, what an amazing name. So they're talking about you know whether this is you know what what it is they're chasing, and Dick Durkin says, if I weren't the rational human being, I think I am. I wouldn't say this. Thing, thinks it's Satan I'd say it was Satan and Rutger Hauer says yeah well Satan's in deep shit and kicks the door in and it's just the best movie moment <laughs> of all time ever now, the thing is though does it actually turn out to be a monster or is it just, because one thing I hate that's come into films the last 20 years is where there appears to be a sort of a superhuman killer like what's this seven is the worst for this where you know the people who vault over like 80 foot walls and so on and then at the end it's just an ordinary man and you think well that, that's just stupid and that's yeah. ruined the whole thing so it's not like that is it please tell me it's an actual monster no no it's it well i mean it's a bloke in a rubber suit but it is an actual monster it, it, it the last 20 minutes they clearly ran out of money the effects let it down quite considerably um when they're actually up against the monster it looks a little bit like uh duran duran's wild boys video at the end <laughs> so yeah it's not it's not um i would say its ending is not its strongest point but it is a proper monster okay well supposing we've got a scale where at the one end you've got you know really really bad films that are really really popular for some reason where no nobody dare say they're bad like dare I say it Forrest Gump in the middle of the scale you've got things like Absolute Beginners Morons from Outer Space which are brilliant films but they have a terrible reputation because you know people slag them off at the time but they're better than most things that win Oscars and then the other end of the scale, you've got things like Gladiatorous, the Smack the Pony film, which is just unwatchable. Where would you say Split Second was on that scale? I think it's in the middle. It's what me, uh, me and my friends have an annual tradition of good, bad movie night. And Split Second is a good, bad movie. It's, it's on every possible measure of artistic prowess it is a bad film the acting is okay but it's lots of people running around being caricatures of themselves the effects are terrible particularly towards the end the dialogue as written if you just saw it on a page you just wouldn't believe it but you just want to cheer it along because it's Rutger doing what Rutger does and it's amazing so it's a good bad film <laughs> 
So I'd say somewhere in the middle of that scale in terms of utter and complete watchability whilst your head ain't going to trouble the Oscars. <laughs> and that concludes this week's edition of Wittertainment. <laughs> so, uh, yes, that's your recommendation if you do or don't want to see Split Second. There is one thing it doesn't mention, which is page 380. Gillian what was on that? Well, we got teletext in our household about 1989. So around the time, I think, I think it was about 92 when Oracle lost the license. And then it became teletext. And the weird thing about teletext is after 9pm, you got teletext after dark, which is not some kind of weird uh, pixel-based horror, but it was sexy teletext. You say sexy teletext, but I mean, my recollections of it where it was, it was like the back page of Sky magazine. It was about yeah. erotic on that level. You know, sort of like kids in school who go, Whoa, rub their hands like Richie and Eddie, but yeah. it wasn't quite, wasn't quite anything Mary Whitehouse would have been getting too upset over. If she knew how, I wasn't sure she'd know how to operate teletext, to be honest. She probably thought it was all wholesome uh, weather reports. Because I remember the letters pages on teletext were really very right wing. So maybe that's what Mary Whitehouse read. Well, it was kind of hidden, actually. I don't remember how I found the After Hours pages. They were sort of black and dark blue, weren't they? That was the colour scheme. And there were things like, I remember there was a dreadful kind of sex humour strip called Turn of the Screw. Yeah. I was about to say it's like a porn version of The Adventures of 4T from Channel 4's Turn of the Sex, but that just sounds completely wrong, so... Well, do you remember remember Turn of the Worm from... um... I do. You're going to mention Turn of the Worm being sick, aren't you, from Digitizer? Oh, yeah. yeah, the one the one that everybody says is attributes to being the last day ever of Teletext or something. It wasn't, was it? It was just when they closed no. Digitizer down. Anyone who's not seen that, I'm not even going to describe it. Go and Google no. Turn of the Worm being sick, but don't do it at work. That is very, very important. Well, it's just a, it, Tim, it's just a worm being ill. Well, I don't understand what the problem is. <laughs> What's not work safe about sick worms? I don't even have an answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> but other stuff I remember on it, there were graphics that were kind of the equivalent of those dreadful discs for like the Atari ST that would do the rounds at school, where people would say, oh, it's like nudie pictures on it. And it's really <laughs> sort of blocky... You know, like somebody's like email signature almost. It's like erotic etch-a-sketch or something. Yeah, there was a sex quiz. There was sex scope, which is your erotic horoscopes. I'm convinced there was all some kind of hookup service, like a kind of couples meet couples thing. That now rings a bell. Um, I remember they had chat that to be legal, surely. Well, there used to be a pen pal page on um, the teenage bit of teletext, and I think that was basically a contact magazine for bored teenagers. Ages. You know, people would write in saying, I like going out and having a laugh and blow and I want to speak to boys of 15 who like the same things. Was that you? Did you send that in? It was not, but um, it sort of makes sense they'd have some kind of contact magazine type couples thing on there. Now I'm wondering about the Ofcom uh, implications of that, of basically having hookups on teletext. Well, I'm wondering how long it actually lasted, because I will admit I very quickly graduated to, not long after I discovered it, my parents got 
somehow ended up with cable TV. I still don't really know how. And then, you know, you've got the German channels where it's either mind-blowing sort of 60s drug stuff or actual soft porn. And yeah. so that was how your Saturday nights were spent from then on when everyone had gone to bed. Not looking at just blocky lettering waiting forever it to get to the next page. But I believe it didn't last very long. No, I think, I imagine it had a limited audience. You know, obviously back in the, the early 90s, if you wanted to get adult materials a lot more of an embarrassing procedure but maybe yeah maybe they just got a flood of complaints and thought you know it's not working yeah i mean there is a whole kind of it's a almost a forgotten area of not just television history but cultural history i mean just even the more you know the safer and more anodyne parts of teletext and cfax as well yeah an everyday part of people's lives I've just got forgotten about. I mean, I mentioned 40 on Channel 4. There was, wasn't there a soap opera on Oracle? Park Avenue, yeah. And there was, I won't say too much about this because somebody's earmarked this for a future edition of this, but there was a brief experiment in having CFAX present Saturday morning TV. Oh. BuzzFAX, where it linked it with like blocky pictures of like Jason from Battle of the Planets and Mickey Dolans and so on. And there is no evidence of that out there apart from the one picture of Buzz himself that was in the Radio Times. Yeah, I don't remember that at all, but it sounds very much like something I would have been very into. So now I'm curious as well. But do you remember the last day of CFAX? Maybe not, because I didn't have a TV at the time when that was on. I didn't have a TV with teletext. I remember there was either CFAX or teletext had the gradually shrinking picture. I think that may have been teletext because CFAX, they kind of like went into, at the end, a weird medley of all those, you know, those big full page graphics that you, oh, yeah. the breakfast time cat with its moving tongue lapping milk and so on. And yeah. That thing with the huge cricket bat next to the even bigger tennis ball. <laughs> then it kept having all old bits of pages of CFAX music and it ended with, this is one of those things that you'll know when you hear it. And I might yeah. play out with this actually, but by Ruby, who were a band that sort of spun off from Creedence Clearwater Revival, which is that twangy guitar instrumental that they used all the time in sort of the late 70s, early 80s. It was, it was actually a proper record, but it got co-opted by CFAX for some reason. It ended with a caption just saying, CFAX, whatever year to whatever year, thanks for watching, mm. and played out with that. I don't mind admitting that at three in the morning, as a fully grown adult, I burst into tears at that. I feel quite emotional thinking about that now. I, I've got memories in my head now of being up early enough to see Night Screen with the uh, similar sort of music. Oh, yes, yeah. I forgot about Night Screen. <laughs> yeah, it, I think it was Teletext Pages, wasn't it? It was, and also Job Finder as well. Job Finder, that's the one, yeah, which I think still exists, but it, it looks like it's been done on a computer made after 1990 now. What, so what made in 1991? <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> it has corners in it. Do you think the internet killed Teletext and CFAX, or do you think it just served its purpose? Is it just another incidence of millennials killing things millennials killing CFAX. surely they'll consider it ironic and retro soon and stop. Uh, yeah maybe i don't know i think it was maybe the digital switch off or the, or the analog switch off rather when tv's a whole move to digital because digital teletext never took off no that's true even despite johnny vegas's best efforts yeah and the monkey well the monkey sold his soul to pg tips so 
he d- he couldn't join the effort. But yeah, I think it's, it's a bit cheap to say it's the internet, but you know, you can check the Times programmes are on and you can check the sports results and the, and the news and those were the three main uses for people, I think, for teletext. You've also reminded me that on cable, which I didn't have it, but my sister did, was Paramount Teletext, which had the mailbox, which was like a cool gang of people chatting about sitcoms and comedy. And it was wanted to be part of their gang and phone in and you could actually phone in on the phone and leave a message but i'd go around there and read it until my sister shouted at me to put the normal tv back on because <laughs> i wanted to read about people talking about fraser and um what was the other one grace under fire they always used to show but for some reason someone's put all of the archives of mailbox on the internet as well so maybe there's a lot of nostalgia out there still for teletext well it's frequently said there's too much internet i think that's proof of it and that there's not enough teletext phil what was in the Country Life Christmas box? Oh man! Well, this was um, this was one of those weird kind of adverts that kind of like, you only got around Christmas that straddled an entire commercial break. You know, like the like the Woolworths extravaganzas where they would line up a bunch of celebrities, give them each a product to flog, and just like take over an entire break. But this was different because this was it was an advert for butter, but it was also an advert for the adverts for butter. You'd, you'd had for a few years, you'd had, was it, it was the Wurzels, wasn't it? It wasn't the Yetis or something like that. It was the Wurzels doing the soundtrack, basically singing this uh, slightly adapted popular English folk song, flogging country life butter. And you had these four animated kind of homunculi made out of the same stuff, singing about how they love to eat country life butter, which is obviously the simultaneously the main constituent of their own bodies. <laughs> No, you don't think about that too much, obviously. But then, apparently it was in 1979, the uh, the Christmas compilation was made. But I must have seen it a couple of years later, because I seem to associate it with the same Christmas that The Black Hole was shown on ITV as the big Christmas film. In, you know, sort of um, in the evening, they introduced this compilation of their best adverts. And they just said, for all you mums, here is something for you. And they show an advert as if it was their gift to you. They're going <laughs> to butter at you again. And I was very young at this time, and it kind of started a kind of change in my attitude to advertising, because before, as a very young child, I thought adverts were clearly the best thing on TV, because they were colourful, they were noisy, they had music, and they fitted my attention span perfectly. So, you know, I'd start sort of tape recording the gaps in the adverts more than the programmes themselves. But yeah, but when I, once I saw this, I kind of thought... That's a bit much, isn't it? You know, why, why are you s- openly celebrating these adverts that we've seen 500 times before anyway in this kind of compilation? And t- I don't know. I wasn't, I didn't suddenly overnight turn into this kind of anti-capitalist cynic. But it was kind of, it was just the very first knockings of, that's not as brilliant as you say it is. But yeah, the more you think about the country life that I'm in situation anyway, the more horrible it gets. Apart from the kind of vague cannibalistic overtones, you had what would now be seen as extremely off-colour, um, oh, she likes that, don't she? She gets that all the time. <laughs> it's kind of horrible innuendo, which kind of suggested that the buttermen were just going around having their way with these housewives. <laughs> it's some kind of horrible, emulsified kind of cross between last tango in Paris and straw dogs. Gangs <laughs> of four kind of arriving at these houses. It's just, oh, how can I take this one off the list? Well, the thing that 
that alarms me about it, watching it now, is obviously it runs about three minutes or something, but it's the kind of thing where, when you're a kid, that length of time seems to go on forever. Especially yeah. if you're not expecting them to keep coming back with encores and say, Arr, shall we do another one for you? And like, it just it goes, stretches on into infinity. You've been sat there thinking, will the Ralph Bashke Lord of the Rings ever come back on? Oh, God, yeah. And, and also, every advert starts with that sort of descending accordion. Not again. Well, do you know who actually broke the music for that? No, I don't. No. I love this. It was a gentleman called Ken Jones. Where You talk about mad career paths. He starts off producing the zombies in the 60s. He then goes into film and TV music. I think he did the music for Two Way Stretch. He wrote the themes for It's Marty and Sykes. Oh, And decent. then, around the time that the Christmas box went out, he did the theme to an ITV sitcom, which I know you have some thoughts about. Can you guess what it was? God, 1979. No, you might not be very H-A-P-P-Y when you figure out what it is. Oh, did he do the titles to that? He did. Excellent. Only When I Laugh. The most <laughs> terrifying sitcom theme ever. God, yeah, with James Boland being dragged through the doors. Yeah. I know we're going off topic a bit, but yeah, the uh, Only When I Laugh. I remember they were kind of repeated on one of the former gold channels like maybe about 12 years ago and some of them were very bizarre because i remember watching it and i remember one that i kind of remembered almost verbatim which is the one where um figgis james bolam's character has to have a blood transfusion and the only person in the entire hospital with a blood type matching him is peter bowles's character so james bolan spends the rest of the episode panicking that he won't be taken seriously by the shop stewards at his place of work because he's now technically fighting <laughs> what? there was another one which was kind of i don't know what eric chapel's personal feelings on smoking were but there was a there was this kind of weird very vehemently anti-smoking episode where obviously Figgis and Glover are lighting up and they persuade Norman Bins to start smoking as well. So they're all sitting there in hospital smoking fags, which I don't know how realistic that was even at the time. And then Richard Wilson's doctor comes in and delivers a very heartfelt and serious lecture about the dangers of smoking. And, you know, it's like the comedy is kind of switched off for this message, which is kind of, you know, it's admirable, but it, it's very, that was very weird for the time. Well, to bring us back to the Country Life Christmas box, I mean, I am quite obsessed with the idea of advertising about advertising. It always makes me think of, I've never understood this, out there, there are examples, genuine examples of a BBC continuity slide of the BBC School's Diamond. I thought, like, what the hell was that used for? You know, follow shortly, follow shortly. <laughs> I don't get that at all. But there is a thing about it. I remember they tried to... Which insurance company was it that had We Want to Be Together? It Prudential or something? Yes, or... it was. Yeah, when they did the second round of them, there were bus stop adverts saying, will they stay together? Tune into ITV at 8pm tonight and find out. And like, You don't advertise an advert. That's just craziness. I... Surely there was only one advert in the first place, wasn't there? The one, you know, the one where Mark Williams is banging on about all the things he wants, you know, all the the humdrum things he likes. And Joe Unwin silently going, no, I want a world cruise and stuff like that. Yeah, but it was vitally important you saw the sequel that nobody asked for. <laughs> nobody I mean, wants to find out what happened to Clifford the Dragon for the Listerine advert and how his date went. So I know, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, it's, I suppose things like the gold blend couple kind of 
got into popular folklore and then they capitalized on it but yeah some of them tried to do it reverse you know and kind of reverse engineer a kind of popular thing you know everyone's talking about this it's like no they're not later on in the 90s it's like they turned you know adverts turned into programs didn't they because you had things like the baldy man with gregor fisher which was taken off his hamlet cigarette advert oh yes <laughs> it itself was just a sketch on naked video that they'd ripped off for the advert anyway but then it was turned back into like a sort of kind of sub mr bean program wasn't it well and there was also i've never been clear on this i mean i should go and look in jem roberts's new book which is just over there but did the fry and lorry alliance and leicester kind of predate a bit of fry and lorry because that basically is those adverts made into a program it wasn't hugh Laurie's character was called mostin in those wasn't it yes yeah, so there, yeah, there's some link there, yeah. A pretty tidy sum. And um, what was that? What was the programme with the, the, the Craft Philadelphia Girls on Channel 4? 6.30-something. That was it, because it was on a half... It existed at the same time as 30-something. That was just them sat at a desk doing kind of showbiz gossip or something, as far as I can recall. And yet still no sitcom spin-off for the operatic Baco Foil Turkey and Chef, sadly. <laughs> Okay, that strange gentleman warbling on about how Britain without the monarchy wouldn't be an elephant was Mr Enoch Powell. Andy, what was this? There is a formative moment in my life, and it's when the goodies, um, the South Africa programme was on. It's basically towards the, the autumn of 1975, and we're on a canal holiday through the Leicestershire countryside, my mother and father and my sister and I, and we're all on this narrow boat called Thrush, hilariously enough, which made me wonder if there were others in the series called things like Smirch and Spectre, I don't know, um, or whether they were just named after domestic wildfowl. <laughs> but anyway, here we are, we're, dr- we're going along the canal, and there's all sorts of things on this formative canal holiday which, I, 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 which stay in my mind like you know they're indelibly printed there was stopping off at this strange grim industrial village in the middle of some fields where you had to sort of trudge through the fields to get to it called fleckney and um getting some fish and chips and there weren't any ordinary drinks there mm. it was all made by this company called furnival's of fleckney <laughs> who had this huge chimney like in something out of charlie and the chocolate factory you know with smoke coming out of it and there was this substance called solar cola which was like nothing else that i'd ever t- it was as though some had sort of like phoned through a description of what coke tasted like to some industrial spying concern and they'd mm. auctioned it off and furnivals had got it and then recreated it from this vague instructions of what it tastes like it tasted nothing like coke anyway that was that motoring further along towards leicester you know things like someone had done an impromptu fireworks display by sticking a load of fireworks into polystyrene blocks and setting them free into the mm. canal and we somehow had to navigate our way through that went under this bridge going into leicester and written on the side of it in huge Huge letters, balls to Enoch Powell. <laughs> you know, you know, in the sort of lettering that you would you, you would imagine somebody tagging something. Now that sort yeah. of size, balls to Enoch Powell. <laughs> what impressed me was that it wasn't on the towpath side. Mm. Someone had gone across it, gone across the canal, and written it on the other side of the bridge, balls to Enoch Powell. So as we went through there, I'm sort of looking at it going. Balls to Enoch Powell. You know, five years old I was. Funny thing was, I knew who Enoch Powell was. Mm. I knew he was that shouty man who talked an awful lot of rubbish about the European community and the common market and who seemed to have all sorts of daft opinions about people I was at school with, to wit, 
you know, people who were black or Asian or Indian or wherever they were from. He generally had this mystique about him, like a kind of malevolent spirit. He was mm. like a, a cartoon villain. I mean, he even looked a little bit sort of hooded, clawish. Well, know? I well, I recently listened to his Desert Island discs just because I've made the commitment to try and listen to all of the ones that mm. are on the BBC website. I was actually he started shouting at Sue Lawley mm. for he said misquoting the you know the Rivers of Blood speech and she said I'm reading her a transcript and he was almost screaming you are not saying it in context I was actually a bit frightened of him yes this this dead idiot yes. you know talking nearly three decades ago and I was I was walking you know I was listening to it on my headphones and I was actually quite scared of him yeah <laughs> but there he was you know and and and. Going going along the canal, heading up to Leicester, which even at the time was somewhere that was that had a reputation for being multicultural because mm. of the textile industry. Yeah. And bearing in mind, in 1975, as we motored into Leicester going along the canal on the MV Thrush, we passed by the, 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 the Courtaulds factory, which was all sort of like you could see in there, and it was all stuff being spun. And there's that mm. huge place where the Montfort University now is, where it was all industrial and lining the, the, the banks of the, the Royal Mile, or whatever it's called, the River Soar, as you're going up, to, up you know, the, the canal into Leicester. And thinking that there were more people in the world at that point who thought Enoch Powell was an idiot mm. and realising that you know I wasn't entirely sure what balls to Enoch Powell meant <laughs> but I was pretty mm. certain that the person who wrote it didn't mean it like here's a ball would you like a game of footy with it you know <laughs> wasn't offering him a game of rounders you know it was, mm. this was this was someone who was basically saying you're an idiot what you say is rubbish it's dangerous you, you you're talking through your hat and the very fact that earlier that year there'd mm. been the referendum on staying in the european union and uh, stay, well, the, the, the common market as we mm. have to call it but even then it was the european community and i know it was that because it was written on the ballot paper and i know what was written on the ballot paper because we had the day off school mm. and my dad took me to school when he went and voted and he lifted me up to show me what he was doing and he showed me what he was voting and why he explained to me you know i'm voting that we should stay in the european union because i think it's going to be the best thing for you and he was right and i've had an, an amazing career in the music business mm. working with people across continental europe traveling around djing touring doing all the stuff that i do some people say yeah but you'll still be able to do that when we leave mm. and I go, well, yeah we, we did it before we joined and all this sort of thing and generally speaking they're possibly right mm. but we won't be able to do it with the same degree of ease no. and economy that we can do it now the other thing i'll say about enoch powell is that a few weeks ago it was brought to my attention that on one of these kind of mod memorabilia websites where mm. you can buy things to stick on your scooter or sew on your jacket, there was a, 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 a sticker which quoted the bits of the Rivers of Blood speech oh. and had a picture of Enoch Powell with a Union Jack in the background mm. and it said something like National Hero or something. I was absolutely horrified. And I didn't think mm. that here we are many, many, many years after his death that we'd still be having to say balls to Enoch yeah. Powell and to the kind of people that still think that what he said was, you know. They, they, I, I mentioned it and someone said, he was ahead of his time. He was a visionary. Behind his time. Well, yeah, yeah. but I mean, you know, he, was, he wasn't. He was a nutcase. Yeah. And he, he, the funny thing is, 
that the older I get, the more right wing I'm supposed to become, mm. the more sort of like entrenched and set in my ways and things. And actually, the opposite has been true. I think the more the older I've got, mm. the sort of more the more inclined I am to want to experience new things and to want to sort of go off and meet new people and talk mm. about and, and you know. And somebody asked me what record you want played at your funeral and all that kind of thing. I said, well, I don't know. I probably haven't heard it yet. Yeah. You know, maybe it hasn't even been recorded yeah, yet. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd like to think that there's still mileage in in all the stuff mm. that we're interested in you know and there's a lot you know we have a, a lot of common interests mm. in you know in popular culture and science fiction and sort of strange films and stuff like that and so much of what's to enjoy about all that stuff is yet to come yeah you know and and you know and there was someone in the face of enoch powell you know who wasn't interested mm. in a progressive future he was interested in keeping things as they were he was interested in winding the clock back mm. to a time when he personally felt comfortable and you know the whole point about sort of moving forward i mean there's this there's this wonderful thing in in one of those days in england by roy harper which is an amazing epic of a song mm. and there's a lovely line in it and he talks about four in love and he says that half the fun in falling is you don't know where it's to and I think that's the kind of attitude that you need to take with you into the future I mean the, the, the future is this beautiful place that we haven't got to mm. yet and all the while we keep moving towards it we'll encounter all these things that surprise us and anyone who wants to stop mm. us from expanding our horizons from sort of like going off and indulging in new activities or seizing new opportunities or sort of taking the time out to help other people they're people you need to avoid they're not people yeah. you need to encourage and Enoch Powell even at that point represented all of that and that sort of closed-minded sort of intransigence and you know there are people who say yes but he's an intellectual he was talking you know with the Amber. he was quoting sort of whoever it was some roman or whatever talking about the tiber being filled with much blood and all that kind of thing and you think okay well yeah maybe you know you are being quoted out of context but i tell you what if you start using phrases that can be construed as saying rivers of blood you know and you're talking about immigration you're talking about people having the whip hand over people yeah. that's very inflammatory language and you can't turn around and and say you didn't say it when so yeah. many people saw you saying it. Well, and you look, can't complain that you're being quoted out of context. Mm. When what, what context are we supposed to quote it in? Well, Ridiculous. of course, later, as I've just proved with that clip, we have to take him talking about an elephant without a trunk and started crying out of context. So, oh, yeah. he was an idiot. He's not an elephant. I mean, what the. <laughs> Isn't he, he, you know, he, all he could see things in terms of well, you know he, he, he talked in terms of things that seemingly only he understood mm. and if you you know it, it's like well you know it's like what we were saying earlier about if you weren't clever enough to appreciate what he was saying then you were inferior and mm. you weren't worth worrying about I, I think it's safe to say that him and Patrick Moore would probably have got on like <laughs> a house on fire right who were they it's weird it's cheese and onion and I was reminded of this because I watched Inside number nine the other day so and they actually mentioned cheese and onion and i thought my god i remember cheese and onion so basically after the death of eric morecambe or or just before so morecambe and wiser you know people don't remember this but after they moved to it the people do remember it but people what i'm saying is many people just see the career of morecambe wise as just this halcyon forever bright magnesium tape brightness kind of shine but actually by the time they got to itv it was i remember the endless conjecture they're going off the boil and they had you know because eric wasn't very well so they were looking for people to replace them in the magic double act way and cheese and onion came along 
And all I remember is they had a graffiti wall or some sort of wall at the back of them with their names on. And they were being pushed and pushed and pushed. I have Derek Hobson in my mind. He did something with them, but that might be my brain mashing up a new faces thing. I'm not sure. I could see, even at my age, that they were being really hammered and people really wanted you to take them. But there was nothing there. There was I could see in my little brain there was nothing there. They they were just not funny. And to this or they just didn't work together as as a duo. And to this day, I I remember, you know, that sense of discomfort you have when things aren't quite working on television. This real feeling that, that it just wasn't working and they knew it wasn't working and everybody around them knew it wasn't working. But I remember thinking, well, why are they persevering with them? Perhaps they think it was perhaps they think perhaps they're brilliant in, in holiday resorts and things like that, which makes me think it was also the forerunner of Joe Beasley and Cheeky Monkey. Things that, you know, work outside, but then you translate them to television. They don't quite work. And to this day, cheese and onions still makes me feel a bit off kilter. Because I, I know there's something not quite right. There were no cannon and ball put like that. That's a quite uh, <laughs> damning statement, really. But um, I've I've looked into this. I found out because everything online you can find out about them. Nobody can remember the name of the program that they were on. Apparently, they headlined a series called Funny Bone on ITV in 1982 on Saturday nights, which was a showcase for a number of up and coming people, none of whom seem to have done anything afterwards. I mean, even I had never heard of any of them. Malk Stent, Sonny Hayes and Co, and Nina Finberg. No, no, I don't know any of those. Okay, so we're talking about the interim period between New Faces and Tim Brooktale's The Fame Game, I'm thinking. So we're talking in that. So I've mashed up in my head that Derek Hobson was hosting it. But I doubt that he was. When you think about it, with the choice of channels that was available then, we would have watched that. Even though you don't remember it, You, you would, if you weren't watching BBC, you would have been watching ITV. Unless you were a sued and you were into something on BBC Two about opera in Korea or whatever. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, I think that that would make sense that I saw it. But I have no recollection of the show. But I do remember that because I remember my discomfort because they just couldn't quite. It wasn't quite working. That sounds like a summer show. That sounds like an August kind of show. Have you got the dates it was on? Yes, you are right. It was on in June and July, 1982. Yeah, it sounds summery to me. It sounds like summer schedule. So your big shows have ended and you're shoving in this. Yeah, that's got summer schedule written. On. And it's also that end of the peer humour that was still big then because people still went to Skeggy. Well, they still do now. But really then you went to Skeggy, you went to Blackpool and you it was the end of the peer kind of show. And I felt that somehow cheese and onion you know had done great summer seasons but didn't work on television as did Morecambe and Wise not work on television when they first started but obviously they had the immense talent and the sense to make it work but yeah cheese and onion I wonder if they're still about I did look up they split up in about 1982 or 83 and I wondered if that was related to Walker's crisps messing about with the colours for cheese and onion and salt and vinegar (laughs) (laughs) I thought there's no future in this game now lads we've built this branding up and they've gone and messed with it but they're retired now so well bless them I mean I, I wish them all the very best but it was it was kind of the first experience I remember and I'm sure there were more with things not quite working on television and the discomfort of of things not quite working because I'd only ever seen comedians till then that were very polished or other people were laughing at even if I didn't find them funny other people were laughing at this was just 
that discomfort thing, which which sticks long in the mind, Tim. The one that I remember having much the same feelings over was quite a different thing, really. But on Blue Peter, they had, you know, Marvin the Paranoid Android did a single when the TV Hitchhikers was on. He performed it on Blue Peter. So it's just the Marvin costume standing there while the record played. I remember even as a young child thinking, I feel sorry for everyone involved in this. <laughs> I think I remember that tune, was it? Every day, every day, Marvin. That's more than was to it, yeah. <laughs> and it was just him in a monotone, wasn't it? Yeah, All but the, it, it was yeah, just the costume stood there with just the record playing over it. Good old BBC cross promotion there. That's pretty beautiful. <laughs> Fly me. Why is that in my head? Fantastic. I've known that. I'm going to have to look that up now. There's a, bet there's a YouTube clip of that, surely. That was a collection of highlights from Lots of Familiar. Me, Tim Worthington, talking to Bob Fisher about Giant Hogweed, Samira Rahman about Havoc, Jenny Morrill about Boots Global Collection, Mitch Ben about two-stage self-assembly as cream coat, Mark Thompson about Amazing Monsters, Vicky Gregorich and Jeff Lewis about The Last American, Justin Lewis about Orbit, Emma Burnell about Split Second, Gillian Kirby about Teletext After Hours, Phil Norman about The Country Life Christmas Box, Andy Lewis about Vintage Anti-Enoch Powell Graffiti, and Ray Earl about Cheese and Onion. Don't forget you can find the full version of all of these shows, many more shows besides, and much more than that besides, including details of all my books at timworthington.org. See you soon.